I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 23 in our series for 2019, and today's date is Friday, July the 5th. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. First, I'll be talking to Professor Jason Potts, a director of the Blockchain Innovation Hub at RMIT, who looks at how Facebook is changing the banking system with its cryptocurrency model. And he says it will be followed by others like Apple and Microsoft. So banks should watch out. And then I'll talk to RMIT economist Jonathan Boimel, looking at what's ahead in the Australian property market with the RBA cutting interest rates. But first, let's talk to Jonathan Potts. Facebook has moved into cryptocurrency. What's your views on that? Yeah, so they've, they've released um, the white paper for LibraCoin, and um, it looks like they've been working on this for a few years now. And um, it's going to be 
unrolled next year. It'll go live on, on, on Facebook. Um, they're teaming up with a group of partners. About 20 um, at the moment have been announced. There's going to be up to 100 nodes that'll um, come in on this. So first of all, it's a big play. It's, it's, it's you know, the biggest social media company in the world teaming up with um, some of the other big platform companies like Uber and Visa and MasterCard and PayPal. And those are um, so a, a significant play to move into the money and payment space has just happened. Right? So that's and we've never seen something this big before. That's um, we've had startups like Visa back in the 1960s. And then they grew, and that we've seen PayPal sort of in the late 1990s as digital money. Um, but each of those was a relatively niche thing that subsequently grew. This is starting big. It's, it's, the, it's the importance of that. And what we're seeing now is really for the first time at scale, serious private money competition. What will that do for the banking system? Well, the banking system is the competition in this space, right? So... Um, Banking, the, the banking system, banks, and the and underlying payments networks that they run on, um, they've been more or less have this, had the same architecture for about the last you know three four hundred years. Right? They they have not had competition in this space, and what they've always run on is they've they've been organisations that have provided um, payment services and, and loans and so on, financial services, but they've run them on government money. Right, so the, the the sovereign money, the the U.S. dollar or the Australian dollar or the Swiss franc, has always been the 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 money upon which the banking system subsequently provides all its services. That's the thing that's just been disrupted, because what Facebook is doing is they're coming in as a tech company, a social media company, and they're providing money, and private money. private money, and that's different from coming in and providing financial services. Right, so. Um, what we're likely to see is financial services will subsequently be built by this social media company and its mates. Um, but that's the scale of what's just happened. It's, it's, it's a really interesting structural shift. And you know, there's basic questions around, is that even legal? Um, you know, a bank is an object... I mean, any, any company that's called a bank is... Um, called that because it meets certain regulatory and statutory requirements, right? Just n n not anything can call itself a bank. It has to be licensed as, as that. So it's a creature of the state or it's a creature of a regulatory environment. Um, and Facebook is not a bank. Um, and most of its partners that are coming in aren't banks either, but they're providing money and payment services and things that look quite bank-like. So we've got, we've got disruption and competition in a really interesting direction. It's not the Australian banks are now receiving competition from, say, the Hong Kong banks. It's the Australian banks and the American banks are now receiving competition from something they've never even expected to see that from before, um, basically the, from big tech. And it's something no one expected. Well, I'm sure. No, I'm sure they were at, at high enough levels that they'd, they'd sort of wargamed this and thought that through. But um, the banking system you know, sees itself as a, you know, it, it's a relatively cosy, um, relatively you know, uncompetitive environment, and it's it's like that for a reason. It's, it's 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 like that because of the enormous regulatory protections it has. And those regulatory protections are there for a reason as well, and to make consumers feel safe, handing over huge amounts of money and, and so on. So, it's it's not a 
it's not like software where you've just got open slather and competition there. It's a, it's a regulated environment. And I, I, I don't think they're expecting to see this this quickly um, coming in. Well, Facebook has a whole lot of issues. For example, Facebook has issues regarding data and privacy. So why would people trust them with their money? And secondly, how will they control for things like money laundering? So you could say that regulators will have a lot of issues about Facebook moving into cryptocurrency. What are your views about that? So this is exactly right. Um, the, the, on the first issue of, of consumer trust, I think this will just be a market test. Right? So um, a lot of people like to complain about how Facebook um, uses and sometimes might even abuse their, 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 um, their data. But, you know, they've stated that in their terms and conditions. This is the, this is the deal. You get free social media services. In return, we use your data. Um, Google does the same with search. It's a common business model on digital platforms. Um, so, you know, Facebook is just the biggest in this space, so it, it draws a lot of, a lot of attention to that. Um, obviously, they, they need to be offer a much higher level of security for financial data as opposed to social media data, which is exactly what they've offered to do. Right? So they, it's not Facebook that's running this. It's a new foundation um, called Libra Foundation. It's, it's, not, it's based in Switzerland. It's a consortia. Facebook is one of what will eventually be 100 partners within that. Um, and they're proposing to have, as, well, as I understand it from the white paper, um, the, the Calibra wallet, which is the, the main object that will that will be you'll be interacting with and will has you know very high grade security in it. Um, but I think this is just an interesting market test because if Facebook can do it, um, what that means is that other companies that have much higher levels of trust around, particularly around security, such as Apple. Um, It'll, it'll be open slather for them. So, you know, I think it's a really interesting test that we're going to see with Facebook doing this. So you could potentially see other companies like Apple coming in? Oh, absolutely, yeah. This is, this is um, that's what comes next, right? So Facebook and, its, Facebook and its consortia of other very, very large companies have come in, but there's a few ones that are obviously missing. Microsoft wasn't on the list, Apple wasn't on the list. Um, so, you know, and we can expect that they will have the same um, idea and the same reason to do the same thing. They also have billions of customers um, that they're providing communication services and social media services or tech services or networking services for. So you know, Facebook is, is, is the first. Um, it's significant because they're so big, and this is the first time we've seen tech square up against the banks so, so obviously. Um, but... Your question before is around, well, what does this look like from a regulatory perspective? And the short answer is we don't know. Um, but what this, what this probably will look like is Uber. Right? So when Uber first launched globally, um, the question was, what is, the, what, are these, what is this car-hailing app um, from a regulatory licensing perspective? And the answer was, we don't know. Um, Uber just went in and essentially funded huge amounts of, of legal protections for companies to start that up. They more or less declared war on the taxi industry globally right out, out of the gate and just fought it in the courts. Um, in some places they won, in some places they lost, but um, you can just read in their market cap that basically they won. Um, I think we're going to see the same thing. How do you think the banks will respond to this? Yeah, look, they, hopefully they'll get their act together more. Um, I think it'll be interesting. Um, banks, 
are large, um, tech companies are larger. So I think it's going to be a fair fight in any case. Um, banks are global, tech companies are global. They're Facebook and its 100 huge mates, are, you know, between them will have, um, you know, let's say three, four billion users um, behind them, as do the banks. So it's, it, what it really comes down to is which way politics jumps on this. And it's not obvious to me, I mean, traditionally um, it would be obvious which, which side regulators and, and, and the political classes would, would, would go with. They'd go with their well-heeled, familiar supporters, which is the, the, banks. the banks, the finance sector. Um, and, you know, if we were having this discussion 20 years ago, you'd say, what's big tech? Um, how powerful can they possibly be? And then if we're having this discussion 10 years ago, we'd be like, well, they're getting bigger. But right now, the top, you know, if we go through the list of the top 10 companies in the world, you know, nine of them are big tech. And because you have companies like Visa, MasterCard and PayPal backing them, the governments would be more inclined to look at that. I think it'll be a fair fight. And I think it'll be um, an interesting, you know, it, um, it's not obvious which way this breaks. And that's the first time we've ever had a clear situation of some a competitor to global banking fronting up and being competitive. And, you know, we're only a few days into this into this process, so it's it could shift. But um, my prediction on this is that this is the beginning of, of significant structural change in global banking. If Facebook's cryptocurrency is approved, what will it do for the banks? Um, their business models would probably start to fragment. Um, some of them may pivot very quickly and be able to provide additional services on these platforms. So you know, bearing in mind what Facebook has offered here is a money. And what they haven't done is provided financial services on top of that, like insurance, banking services, payments clearances, and so on. So there's, there's plenty of opportunity there for the banks to pivot, adapt to this new infrastructure, and provide services back into this, this thing, in the sense that the banks could build on Facebook's infrastructure, which would be an interesting development. Um, or they could, they could try and provide their own, um, their own versions of this, but, you know, they're building out with a different set of information and a different relationship to their customers. They don't call them users, they're customers. Um, they could fight politically and try and get it banned and blocked in, this, in the way that Uber or Airbnb, for instance, has in some cities but not in countries. So there might be pockets where they can you know, know Facebook banking you know, in, in this city. Um, so it could, frac it could fracture into, into different zones or regions of the world. Um, China is the big question on this. Facebook does not have presence there. Um, but what we're observing in China is, is that this has already happened there. Things like WeChat and those platforms are already doing, which, which began as mobile social media platforms, are already doing money. Um, but they're, they're doing it denominated in renminbi, not in a new currency. So you know, the future's already arrived in China um, in, in that sense. So you know, it, it could break in all sorts of interesting ways, um, and then it also depends on who else comes in. So if we imagine IBM and Microsoft and Apple, um, you know, I'm, I'm assuming they haven't been doing nothing in the past few years. I'm assuming they've got something ready to go. They just haven't announced it yet. Um, it'll be interesting to see whether they come in as direct head-to-head -head competitors or whether they try and occupy niche zones. Um, Apple might go down the high security route. Um, you know, Microsoft might go down the identity management route. So there's, there's lots of ways that this, this could break open. But 
you know, if you look at comparative R&D performance and just innovation, um, the tech space just lives and breathes this. The banking sector, not so much. Um, and this is, a, this is an innovation competition. Well, it would be fascinating to watch, and uh, thank you very much for your insights. We'll be watching it with great interest. Thank you. My pleasure, Leon. And now let's talk to RMIT economist Jonathan Boimel. Jonathan Boimel, the latest figures have come out on house prices and they show house prices have increased in every Australian capital city, but there are signs the market might be bottoming. What's your view about that? Yeah, look, absolutely. Um, If you take a look at the results for May um, in Melbourne and Sydney, we saw the, the smallest monthly declines um, in the past 12 months, according to, to CoreLogic's daily home value index. And in fact, um, home values rose um, in the Sydney market in the 10 days following the May 18 federal election. Um, so we may be seeing um, a long way to turn around in property prices. What's causing that? I mean, is that the just the result of the election and the concerns about negative gearing being taken off the and capital gains tax being taken off the table or is it something more? Well, look, I think Labor's failure to win the federal vote with its promise of, of um, changes to negative gearing and capital gains tax did make a difference. Um, but we've also had um, an earlier than expected rate cut from the Reserve Bank. Um, so the official cash rate now is 1.25. Um, APRA, the prudential regulator, um, is likely to remove the 7% interest servability test on, on home loans. That'll make a significant difference. Um, we've got the government's promise of a first home loan deposit scheme, um, and we've got expected further declines in interest rates. Um, the market is is factoring in um, a 0.25% cut um, at least by, by August, the Commonwealth Bank has come out suggesting that uh, rates will hit, um, well, the cash rate will hit 0.75% um, percent before Christmas. Um, so, you know, the outlook is certainly more optimistic than it was. And it's also a function of, you know, very dovish statements by the Reserve Bank um, of Australia, you know, the Reserve Bank is concerned. Um, they're saying that employment is unlikely to grow faster than than population growth for the foreseeable future, um, and they're hinting that we may need more than just you know, traditional monetary policy um, changes in the cash rate, and they've sort of hinted that quantitative easing may be may be required um, if the economy doesn't respond to the uh, the latest interest rate. Cuts. Well, that's an interesting question if we introduce quantitative easing because uh, all it did in the US was increase asset prices and for the share market, but not much else. Well, look, there, there was concern with regards to quantitative easing around asset prices, around the potential for an increase in inequality of income. Um, but you know, if people think that interest rates are going to stay low for an extended period, um, we know that that the exchange rate will fall, making it easier for uh, Australian businesses to borrow from overseas, to export, compete with imports. 
Um, we've got a lot of long-term government securities on issue, um, so there's sufficient um, government securities to accommodate a very large program of purchases by the RBA, and if they want, um, they could include non-government securities. There is an issue when interest rates are very, very close to zero, and you do have to look at alternate ways in which the RBA can sim- uh, stimulate the economy. And putting hands, uh, putting money rather, in the hands of the private sector directly, right, by buying up assets, is one way to do it. Um, so all that means is that the Reserve Bank of Australia's hands are not tied, right? Um, they have additional ammunition. Um, and I think it may be the case that um, the Reserve Bank of Australia will not wait until they've hit that, that lower bound of the cash rate. Um, they may act preemptively um, and see some, some mix of both quantitative easing um, in the short run uh, as, well as, as well as reductions in, uh, in the official cash rate. But the question is, I mean, not all the banks passed on the full rate cut. Sure. For obvious reasons. And the further down the interest rate drops, the less likely more banks will be able to deliver the full cash rate because it will affect their margins. Yeah, absolutely. So that means there'll be a limited take-up of, of, of people taking loans. Sure. And that's why, there are, if you look at the minutes, um, the Reserve Bank Board suggests that the federal government also has a role to play in doing some of the some of the heavy lifting, um, and we'll just have to see. We'll just have to see what happens in that space. Um, absolutely, the the Reserve Bank knows that it can't be solely responsible for for stimulating the economy. Um, you know, we've seen a massive wipeout of um, value in terms of the housing stock. Um, falling house prices, combined with lower wages. Um, is hitting a number of sectors. It's not just the retail sector. I mean, if you take a look at, you know, anecdotally, talk to people, um, see what's happening to transportation, for example, um, trucking, and then the workshops that have to service those trucks, right? They're experiencing slower slower business than, than normal. So there's a lot of anecdotal um, evidence out there, Um as well as data which suggests that households are, are increasingly concerned about, about the economy. Consumer confidence has fallen um, for the last three or four weeks. Um, if you take a look at the ANZ Roy Morgan um, measure. Um, so something does need to be done. And certainly um, monetary policy changes are on the table. But um, the Reserve Bank Board recognises that there's also the responsibility of the federal government to take a look at what, what it can do. Well, the question is, do you have house prices bottomed or is there still some way to go? Um, it depends where you look. So looking at Melbourne and Sydney, for example, where we see slower declines, where we see clearance rates, in Sydney, above 60%, and we've been seeing clearance rates above 60% in, 
in Melbourne also over over several weeks. Uh, that engenders some some confidence. Um, however, if you take a look at um, other capital cities, um, capital every capital city. Take a look at the the March data. Every capital city recorded recorded declines. Um, so while we may be coming to to the bottom when it comes to the the Sydney market and the Melbourne market, other markets um, appear to have some some way to go. Could I suggest that uh, the market is unlikely to pick up? quite substantially until there's an increase in living standards and wages and profits, for example, that could actually, that is more likely to affect house prices. Do you agree with that? I'd agree. I mean, low wage growth is hitting a number of sectors, right? It's not just the housing sector, it's the retail sector as well. Um, For sustainable growth in house prices in the medium term, right, you would need to see some more significant wages growth than, than we have seen um, over the past over the past few years. Um, absolutely. I, I yeah, certainly agree with that. Which would suggest that uh, the June figures coming out are not going to be much better. Would that be right? In terms of property prices, that's right. Yes. Yeah. Look, it'll be it'll be interesting. Uh, again, it'll it'll depend. It'll depend on a number of factors related to, to consumer confidence. But I think the fact that the Sydney and the Melbourne clearance rates, right towards the end of May, um, did pick up um, over sixty percent in Sydney. Um, I th- I think that's a good sign. I think that's a good sign. So it's possible that that won't be fully captured in the in the June data. Um, if you take a look at the quarterly data, simply because um, we've had some some pretty uh, pretty weak months. But I think going forward, uh, I think the figures the figures will be will be stronger on house prices in Melbourne in Melbourne and Sydney. But this could take some time till we get back to or till we. House prices are restored. Oh, ab- ab- absolutely. I mean, we've taken a, a massive, a massive hit, and I think it's you know almost four hundred billion dollars has been wiped from the value of the nation's housing stock in the last twelve months alone. It'll take a significant time to uh, to restore to restore that value. Um, but in terms of the the declines and whether those will uh, those will stop. Um, I think we, we we're getting close to close to that point, which is a good sign because house prices are pretty much an indicator of where the economy is heading. Uh, look, I think housing prices, um, in as much as they're a major source of household wealth, uh, do tend to drive uh, a degree of economic activity, particularly in in, in certain sectors, retail, for example. Um, so absolutely, it's uh, it's going to be important to see uh, some health uh, in the housing market before we see um, health in in other sectors as well. Jonathan Boyle, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Lou. So what's happening in the news? Well, Wall Street analysts and economists are sceptical that the truce the US and China reached over the weekend will lead to lasting relief from the trade war. 
Markets rallied on Monday after President Donald Trump and Chinese President Xi Jinping agreed to a trade truce at the G20 summit in Osaka, Japan over the weekend. The S&P 500 climbed to a new intraday record while safe haven assets slipped. But a number of analysts think the rally will be short-lived and that further tariffs could be coming. Pauses on raising tariffs haven't led to much success in the past. Last year at the G20 summit in Buenos Aires, Argentina, a trade truce only lasted about six months before the US went ahead with raising tariffs on $200 billion of Chinese imports to 25% from 10%. While it's positive that the US and China have agreed to reopen negotiations, there is no proof that this will lead to a resolution. So far, no proposals have been able to address the concerns that both sides bring to the table, leading analysts to believe that further escalation of tariffs and retaliatory measures will be on the horizon at some point. In addition, the global economy is still dealing with the damage that the current tariffs have caused, wrote Craig Johnson of Piper Jaffray. The current round of tariffs will likely continue to drag down the global growth, a negative going forward. And Christine Lagarde, who knows a thing or two about economic rescue, particularly when it comes to the vulnerable Eurozone, and who was part of the Troika that bailed out Greece and eventually steered the Eurozone off the rocks, is set to swap the helm of the International Monetary Fund for that of the European Central Bank, becoming the first woman to run Euro-era monetary policy just as the bloc's economy looks in need of fresh stimulus. Lagarde was nominated to succeed Mario Draghi as president of the ECB when his eight-year term ends on October 31st. European leaders turned to the 63-year-old one-time lawyer and former French finance minister on Tuesday after hours of horse trading in Brussels over a package of top EU jobs, which included handing the presidency of the European Commission to German Defence Minister Ursula von der Leyen. And the future of the coalition's $158 billion income tax cut package now rests in the hands of the Senate, having sailed through the House of Representatives without objection from Labour. The government's three-stage plan passed the lower house late on Tuesday night. Labor did not vote against package, believing it had a better chance of amending the bill in the Senate. The opposition supports the first two stages of the plan, which includes tax cuts for lower middle-income earners, but has refused to support the third stage, which involves long-term structural tax change. Labor also wants a second stage, which addresses bracket creep, delivered earlier than planned. It moved to introduce amendments to the bill to address those issues, with Shadow Treasurer Jim Chalmers telling Parliament the proposed changes would see millions of Australians get immediate tax relief and Labor's position, he said, is based on reasonable, rational, hard-headed assessment of the economic and budgetary conditions under this third-term government. The Coalition rejected all of the opposition's amendments, telling Parliament the public wanted the entire package as it was promised. The Senate will consider the bill on Thursday, with condolences for former Labor Prime Minister Bob Hawke the sole item of business on Wednesday. Without Labor or the Green support in the Senate, the Coalition needs four of the six crossbench votes. Earlier in the day, returning Tasmanian Senator Jackie Lambie, who is likely to be a deciding vote, said she needed more time to determine whether she would back the income tax cut package in full. Independent Senator Cory Bernardi will support the bill, while One Nation leader Pauline Hanson, who controls two vote on the Senate crossbench, has said she will not support the full tax cut package. Central Alliance holds two crossbench votes and has indicated it's likely to support the plan in full. The government is threatening to sit late on Thursday to deal with a bill in order to pass it this sitting week. And the RBA has once again cut rates in July to an even 1%. 
That was in line with the majority consensus from Australian economists, including all of the four major banks. It's also what RBA Governor Philip Lowe suggested when he spoke about the last cut. The last two cuts could give the average Australian mortgage holder with a $545,000 home loan an approximate saving of $220 a month if lenders pass on the cuts in full. Markets convinced that another cut will occur before the end of the year. A second cut was always on the cards, particularly given that the RBO's existing economic forecasts, which painted a rather depressing view of the Australian economy, were based on a two-cut scenario. And Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe has ramped up pressure on governments to compensate for weakening monetary policy effectiveness by increasing fiscal expenditure. In a speech on Tuesday in Darwin following the first board meeting in that city since 1968, Dr Lowe said such spending on infrastructure would add to demand in the economy and, provided the right projects were selected, it would also add to the country's productive capacity. He said the Australian government can borrow for 10 years at around 1.3%, the lowest rate it has faced since Federation in 1901. And building approvals fell another 0.5% in May on a trend basis and are now 21% lower over the year. Approvals are almost 28% below their peak three years ago. And concerns are growing that Scott Morrison will need to do much more to turn the economy around and that his current policy agenda has insufficient firepower. Australia is on track to record its weakest fiscal year since the last recession in 1991, dragged down by record household debt, stagnant wages, underemployment and a falling property market. While Morrison is seeking to legislate $158 billion in income tax relief, the biggest tax cuts in more than 10 years, most wouldn't take effect until the middle of the next decade. And after steering the budget back to a forecast surplus after a decade of deficits, the political imperative of sticking with that path means the Prime Minister is unlikely to fund stimulus measures through taking on more debt. Beyond the tax cuts and additional infrastructure spending, critics say measures to boost growth and productivity look thin. The government now has 77 seats in the 151-member lower house, a slim majority, yet an improvement on its minority position before the election. While six independent and minor party lawmakers still collectively hold the balance of power in the Senate, the government now only needs to win the support of four of them to pass legislation. By the end of the last parliament, it had to court eight of the ten so-called crossbenchers. But a more manageable parliament means a little without a clear vision and strong policy agenda. Ian Chubb, who served as Australia's chief scientist for five years until 2016, is equally pessimistic and cites a government winding back tax incentives for research and development that could uncover new growth drivers. The election, he said, showed voters didn't want a contest of ideas and were prepared to elect a government campaigning on a few clichés. And Sydney property prices rose for the first time in almost two years in June, adding to signs Australia's housing slump is nearing an end. House values in the nation's biggest city gained 0.1% last month. CoreLogic data released on Monday showed. However, prices across the combined state and territory capitals fell 0.1%, the data showed. A triple dose of positive news is flowing through the property market. The central bank has cut interest rates again. The banking regulator has proposed easing mortgage serviceability rules. And the opposition Labor Party's surprise election loss killed off plans to wind back tax breaks for property investors. In other signs, sentiment is improving. Auction clearance rates are holding above 60% in Sydney and Melbourne. Realtors are reporting bigger crowds inspecting properties, and lenders are getting more inquiries from borrowers, CoreLogic's head of research, Tim Lawless, said. However, a rapid recovery isn't on the cards. The economy is struggling outside the commercial hubs of Sydney and Melbourne, where home prices rose 0.2% last month. Lenders are still taking a tough stance on approving loans, and there's a glut of apartments hitting the market. And Paladin's refugee services contract on Manus Island 
has been extended by six months in a deal that could be worth $100 million to the controversial security company. Managing Director David Saul wrote to employers and subcontractors on Saturday informing them of the extension and saying it recognises the professionalism of Paladin. The extension until December the 31st is to allow sufficient time for the new government in Papua New Guinea to take over the contract and run an open tender process, at which point the current Paladin agreement will be terminated. The terms of Paladin's new agreement and its value have not been published by the, by the government on its Oztender website. The government's previous contracts with Home Affairs have been worth about $20 million a month. Paladin has been heavily criticised by the Labour opposition, the subject of intense questioning during Senate estimates, and is being investigated by the Auditor-General and by internal auditors for Home Affairs. Prior to the renewal, Paladin had been awarded contracts worth $423 million by Home Affairs without an open tender process. The contract was previously renewed in January for $109 million, despite Paladin founder Craig Thrupp being blocked from entering PNG. And documents lodged last week with the corporate regulator showed German supermarket Kaufland has been on an Australian hiring blitz. The launch of its first Australian store is still more than a year away, but it had 123 local staff by the time its financial year ended in February. It has hired key supermarket executives, store managers and other administrative staff. This comes as retailers such as Kaufland's rival Aldi have put increasing pressure on Coles and Woolworths. And Australia's big banks have pushed back against a responsible lending plan which was proposed by regulator ASIC to protect consumers from borrowing too much with low interest rates. All four major banks raised concerns in submissions published by ASIC which wants them to stop using a metric known as the household expenditure measure. It has been criticised for underestimating borrowers' expenses. The banks, though, think the proposals could restrict access to credit. ASIC will hold public hearings on the issue later this year. And the latest research from an anti-fossil fuel advocacy group has identified LNG as no better and potentially worse than coal in contributing to climate change and casts more doubt on investor support for the next wave of oil and gas projects in Australia. A Global Energy Monitor report warned a planned tripling of LNG capacity would lock in decades of high emissions and have an impact on global warming, as large or larger than the growth in coal-fired power stations. The researchers behind the report said LNG was potentially worse than coal because of hard-to-monitor methane emissions at all stages of the gas extraction and supply cycle. And Woolworths plans to combine its drinks and pubs businesses, Endeavour Drinks and ALH Group, and spin them off through a demerger or trade sale. Woolworths has been under pressure for years to distance itself from the pubs business, which is Australia's largest poker machine operator, and which has come under scrutiny from liquor licensing authorities over breaches of licensing laws. Endeavour Drinks owns big box liquor chain Dan Murphy's and BWS. And disaffected workers who want to be their own boss are turning to trades in increasing numbers, according to new research. Almost half of the more than 600 trades professionals surveyed for the St George a Tradey Economy Report said they had previously spent time in a different role, often in IT or hospitality. And while 40% of the tradies surveyed currently work for a larger company, 75% hope to launch their own businesses in their fields in the next 12 to 18 months. And that's it for this week. And next week, I'll be talking to Dan Turns, the CTO APG for Blue Prism, and we'll be talking about robots taking over your workplace and their impact on industry and society. And I'll be talking to Indeed economist Callum Pickering about the RBA's decision to cut interest rates to a new record low and what it means for the Australian economy. And of course, I'll be bringing you all the week's news. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Have a great week. Take care, be good, and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. 
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 